We're opening our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, we'll read beginning at verse 31 and through the end of the chapter. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Matthew 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before Him shall be gathered all nations. And He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And He shall set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the King say unto them on His right hand, Come, Ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee in a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he also say unto them, On the left hand, depart from me, cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister unto thee. Then shall he answer them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We turn back to the previous chapter, Matthew 24. There's a few verses there. I want us to consider Matthew 24, beginning at verse 6, And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers or many places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then down to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And then one more verse that I, or passage that I want to reference is in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. With those passages in mind, we will consider this morning Lord's Day 19 of the Hutterberg Catechism on page 11 in the back of the Psalter. This is questions 50, 51, and 52. Page 11, question 50. Why is it added, and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members. And then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. And what comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead, that in all my sorrows and persecutions with uplifted head I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. In this Lord's Day of the Heidelberg Catechism, beloved, we have the Catechism's treatment of the important subject of eschatology or the Bible's teaching on the end times, the last days. And if you browse through the three forms of unity, our confessions, you find that the subject is not treated extensively in any place in the confessions. The main reason for that being that the Reformation was a respond to a response to Roman Catholicism. And so the so the creeds especially, especially address the errors of Rome, but also this that at the time of the Reformation the differences that would come in the church's teaching concerning the end times had not really yet been entered into though the seeds of them were there before the Reformation, and it, was through, it would be through this future conflict through which the church now has lived that the doctrine of the end times and the Bible's teaching of the end times would especially be crystallized in the minds of believers. And so it's especially in the last century, century and a half, that the church has dealt with the issues regarding the end times. But now... We must see this morning, that's not to say that the doctrine of the end times is not treated in the confessions. 
And that's important from two points of view. First of all, from a practical point of view, what you and I need to know concerning the end times and the coming of Christ, and I say from a practical point of view, what you and I need to know to be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ is set forth in the confessions and is very clear also in Scripture. And the other thing is this, that the basic and the main principles of eschatology, that is the Bible's teaching on the end times, are contained in the confessions. And there are three main basic principles regarding eschatology that the Bible teaches that are also summarized in the confessions. And if we hold and understand these three main principles, we won't go very far wrong in our teaching concerning the end times. These are the three main biblical principles. The first is this, that the Bible teaches only one future coming of Jesus Christ, which will also be the end of human history, the end of time as we know it. And so the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord. And Jesus himself says, Behold, I come, or I am coming quickly. There's one future coming of Jesus Christ. That's the first principle. The second main principle is this, and we'll have more to say this about, about this, especially in the sermon, and it's this, that Christ is exalted as king already today, and his kingdom is not something that we look for as future and earthly, but his kingdom is already established from the heavenly realm. It's present And it's spiritual, and he rules, especially by the spiritual strength and power of the Holy Spirit himself and the Word in the hearts of his elect people. And he establishes his rule in the earth by the power of the gospel that goes forth to the ends of the earth. So the kingdom is not future and earthly, but spiritual and present and heavenly. The third main principle for a proper understanding of biblical eschatology, and this is why we read those passages in Matthew 24, is that there are recognizable signs of the coming of Jesus Christ. And they're set before us not only in Matthew 24, but in other places in Jesus' teaching, in 2 Thessalonians, and in the book of Revelation, and in other places in Scripture. And when Jesus sets before us these signs, signs that will take place in the creation, signs that will take place in the nations, signs that will take place in the church, he tells us as believers to be aware of these, to be alert to them, and as we are alert to them, to keep our eyes focused on this, that he's coming again. He says, lift up your eyes, your redemption draws nigh. And these signs, the Bible teaches us, will increase in frequency and intensity the closer we come to the return of our Savior. And that's why Matthew 24, verse 8, calls them the beginning of sorrows. The literal idea of that verse is that they are like birth pangs. They're like the contractions that a woman feels when she's going to deliver her baby, and they become more intense, and they become more regular, the closer to the time of delivery. And so it is with the signs of the coming of our Savior. So those are the three biblical principles to guide our understanding of the end times. One future coming, a present spiritual kingdom, and recognizable signs regarding the coming of Jesus Christ. 
a long series of sermons could be preached on all those things. But what we want to do this morning is focus on what the Catechism and the Apostles' Creed here says concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. So let's consider our Savior's return as judge. Notice with me first his second coming, then the final judgment, which is the purpose of his coming, and then our present comfort. You're my comfort in light of these things. Last week, as we looked at the doctrine of the ascension of Jesus Christ, we said that we don't get a full picture of the meaning of the ascension simply by looking at it from an earthly and a physical point of view. We must also look at it from a heavenly perspective. And the Bible gives us those two perspectives. The disciples stood and they watched Jesus ascend into heaven and they saw it from an earthly perspective only and they were confused. But what we saw last week is from the end of Luke and Matthew's, uh, Mark's gospel accounts, as well as Daniel chapter 7, is that the ascension meant that Jesus was crowned in that moment, seated at God's right hand, and all things were placed under his government. And we have to have that perspective this morning as well as we think about the return of Jesus Christ. The angel said, you'll see him come again in the same manner in which he was taken up. But we mustn't think of the return of Jesus Christ from only an earthly perspective. Something is going on in heaven today that helps us to understand the future coming of Jesus Christ. And the question, questions that we ask about the coming of Jesus Christ must not only be this. What is going to happen on the day of his return? But the question must be this. What is happening in heaven today? And how does what's happening in heaven today relate to his future coming? And that's incredibly important for us in understanding the future coming of Jesus Christ because everything that happens today has the final day of Jesus Christ and his return in view. And the most important truth for us here is this in the Apostles' Creed and in the Catechism, what's treated in questions 50 and 51, today he sits at the right hand of God. Today he is king. Today he has an exalted position. Today he's ruler. And today as he sits as king and lord over all things, he's governing everything with a view to his return. Today his kingdom has been established. And he rules from heaven. Or we could put that negatively this way. We do not look for a future earthly kingdom to be established when Jesus Christ returns because God has already exalted Jesus Christ to the highest position as king. He's seated at God's right hand. That's the biblical language for a position of exalted power. In question 50, he's the head of his church, or he rules already as king in the church, which is his kingdom from a certain perspective. And question 51 today, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all our enemies. We don't have to wait for that, but he's doing that today as king and ruler. And those enemies then, and the catechism identifies them, are not political enemies. 
They're not national enemies opposed to Israel as a nation, but they are spiritual enemies. They are the enemies of sin and Satan and the world and the power by which he rules over them and conquers them and defeats them and defeats our own sin as well is the power of his word, his spirit, and his grace in our hearts. And that is so important for us to understand in relation to his future coming. What does that have to do with the second coming of Christ? Well, it means this, that the second coming of Christ does not have the purpose of the establishment of an earthly kingdom. The kingdom is already. And the second coming of Jesus Christ will only be the realization, the fullness, the perfection of the present rule of Jesus Christ in the defeat not of nations and kingdoms on the earth, but of the spiritual enemies of the kingdom of God. And as we look at the teaching of Jesus Christ, we see that as well. We've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon concerning the citizens of the kingdom of heaven and their spiritual character. And one of the things that Jesus emphasizes in that sermon on the kingdom of heaven is its spiritual character. The spiritual character also of the law of that kingdom for the citizens of the kingdom, you and me. And that's why when Jesus comes to the end of his ministry and he's on trial before Pilate and the charge that's brought against him is he wants to make himself king. In other words, a charge of insurrection. He's trying to raise up an earthly kingdom, a Jewish kingdom over against the kingdom of Rome and challenge the rule and the position of of Caesar, who is supreme, and there's a certain irony in the fact that that was the charge that the Jews brought against him because they wanted that more than anybody. Pilate comes to him and says, Art thou then a king? And this is what Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But now my kingdom is not from hence. It's not from here. It's not earthly. My servants are not going to fight for national independence, for an earthly kingdom. And then you remember that Jesus speaks of truth. And Pilate asks him, well, what is truth? And this is a kingdom that's established on truth. That is a kingdom that's established on The power of the Word of God. Not an earthly kingdom. And so those who oppose Jesus say to him at one point in Luke 17, Lord, show us the kingdom and that will suffice us. And Jesus says, it comes not by observation, lo here, lo there, But the kingdom is internal. The kingdom is within you. And so we think of Christ's exalted position this morning as we confess, I believe, that he sits at the right hand of God. And this is what we believe. This is what we confess, that he rules over all things. That's the rule of his power. For the sake of his people, who he rules by his grace. He rules in our hearts. And he brings all things in subjection in the end with a view to his return. 
And when we understand properly the present rule of Jesus Christ, then we understand properly the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that speaks to all ideas of a future earthly kingdom. That's what both the premillennialists who come before that kingdom and the postmillennialists who come at the end of the establishment of that earthly kingdom teach. A future earthly kingdom, but the kingdom is already established and Christ already reigns and rules from heaven. And this is the way for us to understand the thousand years, the millennium of Revelation 20. Now, we're not going to say much more about that this morning, but we do want to say one thing, and it's this, that when we identify the kingdom as earthly and future, that's a danger, a spiritual danger for the people of God. The real cause of Christianity and the real battle against the enemy is not something that we're looking for, looking for in the future over against political and governmental authority, But the real battle is against sin. And we are soldiers in this kingdom, and we are engaged in a battle today, and we must remember that. Otherwise, we are distracted from the coming of Jesus Christ. So he will come. We believe that he's seated at the right hand of God and that he will come again. What can we say from Scripture about the future coming of Jesus Christ? We can say these things. First, that the coming will be future. We mean by that that this is the next great event on God's redemptive calendar. We can think of God's redemptive calendar. You can think, for example, of creation, fall, The establishment of David's kingdom, the captivity in Babylon, the coming of the Redeemer, the cross, the ascension of Christ, and now the next great thing on that calendar will be the return of Jesus Christ. And all of history in the New Testament age is working towards that coming. And we've spoken already of some of these signs. But the signs of the coming of Jesus Christ are simply the events of New Testament history that progressively work toward the coming of Jesus Christ. There always will be wars and rumors of wars. There always will be natural disasters and pestilence and earthquakes. But as we come closer to the time of Jesus' return, these things are going to increase. There always will be the preaching of the gospel. And this gospel will be preached in all the earth. And Christ has determined that it will be preached in all the earth because He's not willing, that is, is against His desire or eternal will, that any one of His should perish. So all things continue for the gathering of the church. And we know that there are Yet things that must take place in the church and in the nations and in the creation. Great falling away and apostasy in the church. The rise of the kingdom of Antichrist in the nations uniting against the church. The great tribulation. And then Christ coming on the clouds of heaven to deliver his own. So the coming of Jesus Christ is future. Second, the coming of Jesus Christ will be real. 
and bodily and visible. Every eye will see him when he returns. Christ himself will appear on the clouds of heaven. He's not going to come secretly to just believers to save them from this earth, but he'll come visibly and bodily to all, and all will be gathered from the four corners of the earth to stand before him in that day. And that will be a great moment of terror for the wicked and a moment of great deliverance for his people, a real visible bodily coming. We sometimes call it the in the Greek word, the parousia, and that means the appearance of Jesus Christ. Third, the coming of Jesus Christ will be sudden. He'll come at an hour when man is least expecting it, as in the days of Noah, he says, so it will be. Men eating and drinking, and unexpectedly, he will come. As a thief in the night, the Bible says. And, and believers will be prepared for this because in their awareness of the development of the signs of his coming, they will be watching and waiting for his return, not knowing the day or the hour, but with expectancy and faith and hope looking for his return. Sudden, but not unexpected for God's people. That coming will be, in the fourth place, personal, which means not only that Christ himself will personally appear, but that he will come personally to each one. He will come personally to each one. The Bible tells us even this in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that there will be a confrontation between the Antichrist and the Savior who will return, and that he will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. And the coming of Jesus Christ to each one personally will again be a terror to the ungodly who will call on the rocks and the hills to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb because, and this is the fifth thing, He will come with power and great glory as the exalted Christ. He is exalted today already. And he will come as the exalted one. He won't come as he came the first time in Bethlehem as a lowly child in humility. But he will come with the angels. He will come with the glory of the Father. He will come with power from heaven. And all the earth will tremble and melt before his coming. And that coming, and here's the sixth characteristic, will be final. One future final event which will mark the end of time and history as we know it on this earth the last trumpet will sound and that will be the end the elements will melt with a fervent heat the dead will be raised and there will be a great gathering together before the throne of the Lamb and that's the purpose of his coming he will come as judge. He is exalted as ruler today, but he will come as judge. The first thing that will take place with a view to the judgment will be the general resurrection. The scriptures speak of this in John 5 verses 28 and 29 this way, that at the voice of the Son of Man, all that are in their grave shall come forth all that are in their graves, and there will be a resurrection of life and a resurrection to damnation, so that all the wicked 
and all the elect will be raised from their graves already suited for their eternal destiny, some to a resurrection of damnation and some to a resurrection of life. Think of that. All who in their graves will come forth. What a day that will be. All the men and women that ever lived prior to the flood, all the descendants of Ham who went south, all the followers of Nimrod at Babel, the Edomites, the Ishmaelites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, all these ancient civilizations, the Greeks, the Romans, the great ancient civilizations of China and Asia who never heard the gospel, the peoples of the continents of Africa, Australia, Europe, the Americas from thousands of years back all the way to the present. All will be called forth from their grave and brought to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not only people, men, women, and children, but also angels will be judged in that day. That judgment and the universality of it is pointed to us in the, sec- in the book of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, which we read, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We must all appear. And these characteristics of the judgment are important for us to remember. It will be a public judgment. In that public judgment before all, each one will be judged individually and stand before the judgment seat. Every deed, every secret thought, every idle word will be judged in that day. All sins will be exposed publicly. The judge will ask an explanation for every sin from everyone. And in that day... Every mouth will be stopped before the throne of God. And the one on the throne will declare in that day the the destinies, the eternal destiny of each one. This judgment will be, according to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, according to what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. It will be according to the deeds of man. And justice will be meted out against those who have lived in impenitent wickedness and unbelief. And those who have believed in Christ by grace and lived in godliness will inherit eternal life. But now we must understand something of the purpose of the judgment. There will not be in that day of judgment an appeal on the part of anyone who stands before the judge to works as an argument for attaining eternal life, that won't even be the case for God's elect to stand before him in that day because all our works, the best of them, are defiled with sin and any good that is in us has its source in God himself. And what will be clear in that day is not that we are righteous on account of our doing, but that God is righteous in all his dealings. And the salvation of God's people is by grace. And that will be the vindication of God and the glory of Christ. 
Maybe we ask this question, why is the judgment day necessary? The judgment day is not necessary for God to determine in that moment what we deserve and what our destiny will be. No, God knows eternally those who are his. He's determined the destinies of men in his counsel of predestination. He's prepared before a lake of fire for the devil and his angels. And the purpose of the final judgment will be the vindication of God, the declaration of his righteousness, the clarity of the working out of his eternal decrees of election and reprobation. And in all the dealings of history, his justice in his dealings with men. And what will be magnified in that day before all, supremely, will be the cross of Jesus Christ. Because there, the justice of God against the sins of the elect is meted out. And God's mercy in their deliverance, in our deliverance, will be set forward. Psalm 19 asks the question, who can understand his errors? Who can know the depths of his sin? In that day, we will know the depths of our sin. Because in that day, we will understand clearer than ever the mercy of God towards us in Jesus Christ. It'll be plain that on account of our sins we do deserve the same as the rest of humanity. The judgment of God and eternal suffering of hell, but the finished work of Christ will be set before all as the covering the complete satisfaction for our sins. He's paid our guilt. And God will be just in sending the wicked to eternal damnation. Think of the very last verse that we read in Matthew chapter 25. The contrast there, these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. But not only the contrast there, also the reality there. These shall go away into everlasting punishment. That's the reality of hell. Jesus comes, and Jesus comes as judge. This, and the catechism goes right to it, is a comfort for God's people. It doesn't say much about the fact of the return of Jesus Christ, or even much about the details of the final judgment, as we've put them out before us in the, in the sermon this morning. But it asks simply this question. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the living and the dead? What comfort? There is a terror for many, for most, 
with regard to the return and the coming and the judgment of Jesus Christ. And the Bible teaches very plainly that those who live in sin without repentance from Jesus, uh, without repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, can only have terror and can only have fear as they think about that great day of the wrath of the Lamb. And this explains man's aversion to death and man's trembling at the preaching of heaven and hell. Listen to this in Acts chapter 24. Paul is before Felix. And Felix's wife Drusilla is with him. And Felix has, a, has an interest in Paul because his wife is a Jewess. And so he sends for Paul and he hears him concerning faith in Christ. And we read that Paul in Acts 24 reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Righteousness, that's the righteousness, the justice of God. Temperance, that is the forbearance of God that He doesn't come immediately in judgment and destroy. But also of judgment to come, that He will come to destroy. And the Bible tells us that Felix trembled. And he said to Paul, go thy way. Stop. Stop talking about this. I don't want to hear it. Maybe when I have a convenient season, he says, when it's suitable for me to hear you again, I'll call you. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. How does Paul continue? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The fearsomeness of the judgment of God and the justice and the righteousness of God is convincing, I could say. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that this is clear to all, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. They know that He's God. They know His divinity. They know His power. They know His Godhead. They know that He comes to judge sin. And like Felix, the unbelieving response to that truth is to hold the truth in unbelief and to, as it were, smear the reality, blot out the reality of God's judgment by pleasure in sin. He comes with judgment, evil to redress. And there's a warning here for us this morning. This morning, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, this morning... If you do not live in repentance over your sin this morning, if you harbor sin in your heart this morning, if you hide sin from the face of God, there's a terror that awaits you. And the gospel call comes loud and clear to us this morning to repent of our sins and to believe on Jesus Christ or perish. There is, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, if we do not repent, a fearful expectation of the judgment and fiery indignation of God. You hear the gospel call this morning to repent, to believe. 
to turn from sin, to walk in the light, that is, in the truth, with clarity before God. So there is a terror, but there is a comfort for all who believe. And that's what the Catechism sets before us, especially this morning. We don't need to be afraid of the judgment as believers because of the identity of the judge. The one who will be our judge is the one who is also our Savior. The one who will be our judge is the one who himself, as our Savior, presented himself before the tribunal of God, that is, before the justice seat of God, and gave his life's blood to pay the price for our sins. He took my curse on himself. He's the one in whom I can trust so completely that not even a hair can fall from my head without the loving will of my Father. He's the one who works all things in my life in the present to bring me to glory. And he's the one that will sit on the great white throne and will say, Come, be blessed of my Father. Inherit the joy prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And that's our comfort, not only as we think about the future and the judgment, but that's our comfort in life and in death, here and now, from day to day. It's this, that the curse of God has been removed from our life, trusting in Jesus Christ and walking with Him and loving Him. We know that the one who will be our judge is our Savior and is our friend today. The Scriptures put it this way in Romans chapter 8, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And the conversation there in Romans 8 does not have to do with the final judgment day, but it has to do with our conscience as we live in the presence. Who shall lay anything to the charge of our conscience? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? Who shall convince us that anything is against us? We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Who shall separate us from the eternal love of God in Jesus Christ? He that spared not his own son, but gave him up. Won't he with him freely give us all things? And so we know that those predestined are called, called, justified, justified, glorified. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you rest? In him for the forgiveness of sins. We've talked about the, all the suffering of the Savior. And all that he's accomplished in his suffering. And now the comfort this morning is that believing in him. We can have confidence with regard to the present, the future, his return, and our internal inheritance. I believe that the Christ who died and rose for me shall come again to judge the living and the dead. And so I, with uplifted head, wait and watch for his coming, praying, Come, Lord Jesus.
Yea, come quickly. Amen. Father, we're thankful for the gospel of the exalted Christ. Good news of his victory over death and the grave. Good news of the hope that is ours. And we're thankful for the Savior who will also be our judge. And who is our judge today. Who has removed the curse from us. And who rules, rules over all things with a view to our final redemption and glory in his return. So we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Yea, come quickly. Amen.